We say it every Sunday to seek the truth in freedom and to help our neighbor. I wonder sometimes, who is this neighbor we're talking about? Are we talking about people here in this congregation? Is that what a neighbor is, that we're here to help each other? Or is it those who live beside us in our homes? Those across the street here and where we live, is it geographic? Those along Gleedsville Road or in the subdivision at the end of Gleedsville, Leesburg, Percival, Ashburn, Hamilton, Round Hill, Lovettsville, or is it broader? Is it the hopeless, the downtrodden, the poor? You get the picture. Of course, I imagine as you think about it, that you're thinking about anyone regardless of ethnicity, religious status, or socioeconomic status. In many ways, today's sermon title, Who is My Neighbor, is a continuation of the sermon from two weeks ago, Who Do We Want to Be? Just as January's theme of liberating love leads into or flows into February's theme of justice and equity. So this is the part two of that sermon from two weeks ago. And I ask again, who do we want to be? Who do we want to be in this world? And how do we want to be together? Who do we want to be in this geographic community? What kind of theology or ontology helps us get free? What love is liberating? What love helps us get free? Another question as we ponder this line of our covenant to help our neighbor is what does it mean to help? The thin line there for me is the difference between charity and solidarity. Charity is a good thing. We, it's a beautiful word. In some ways it means love, but charity, I think, has come to mean something else, something that we give to those less fortunate than ourselves. It suggests then a belief in a hierarchical system an us and a them. It creates a power dynamic then that reinforces systems of oppression and economic inequality. Solidarity, by contrast, takes a systems change approach. Solidarity's foundational philosophy is that all relationships and power dynamics are multi-directional and acknowledges that everyone has wisdom and resources to solve problems. Everyone has wisdom and resources to solve problems. So I want to address some things today that keep coming up. And I want to invite us all into a deeper exploration and understanding of what justice and equity can mean for us as global citizens, as Unitarian Universalists, and as members and visitors to this church. I mean, something brought you here today, right? A longing for connection and belonging, to be among those with shared values, I'm guessing. Maybe you just came for the coffee. 
I hope not. <laughs> the first truth that I want to offer you today is my own truth. I'm committed to racial justice work and to justice work in general. I don't believe that it can be separated from the climate crisis, economic justice, women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights, disability rights, immigrant rights, or any other oppressed or marginalized groups. The second truth is that I owe that to this Unitarian Universalist faith. This area is where Unitarian Universalism has had the greatest impact on my life, personally. It's spiritual work for me, and I believe that it's spiritual work for all of us. I've already taken a few anti-racism, anti-oppression, multicultural diversity workshops in my work with older adults, but in 2006, when I began working with young adults and college students in a Unitarian Universalist setting, I was propelled into educating myself on the fast track, and I'm aware that I still have so much to learn. When I first arrived in this congregation in 2017, it was just after some upheaval among Unitarian Universalists that involved being more aware of racial justice and oppression. Ministers and DREs, Directors of Religious Education, were asked to replace Sunday worship with a teaching on white supremacy. All across the nation, ministers and DREs offered this with materials provided by ministers and lay leaders in our movement who identify as, an indig as indigenous or black or people of color or some combination of all of those. And so we did offer that here as well and all across the nation there was acceptance and all across including here and all across the nation there was resistance by well-meaning white people and some people of color and some who had been on the forefront of the civil rights movement in the 60s and there was here as well all across the nation people left congregations and they did here as well in 2020, a novel coronavirus shut down almost everything, and nearly everyone was dealing with the trauma of such a dramatic, rapid change, trying to figure things out. You remember. <laughs> what a time. And then in late May of 2020, George Floyd was murdered. And most of us were home then with our TVs and internet and 24-hour news, and we couldn't help but see the injustice. I preached about it through tears, I am certain. We marched, we donated, we watched, we prayed. We were still isolating, trying to stay away from each other and keep each other safe, and life went on. Eventually, I backed off preaching about justice so much and moved toward tending our lives and our spirits. but they're really not separate. Justice and equity have always been part of who we are. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? It's there. Once you understand how pervasive this idea of white supremacy is, we can see it everywhere, in everything. It hurts all of us. I've heard many stories from you about how painful racism is. 
how painful injustice is to all of us. So today I'm here to call us back more intentionally to the work of racial justice and dismantling oppression. You'll notice I'm calling it racial justice instead of anti-racism work. And here is why. One woman, Ruby Sales, she's an activist, scholar, and public theologian. And she has a, on Facebook, Ruby Sales from my front porch. She writes this, please refrain from saying anti-racist work. Instead, work for racial justice. Anti is contentious promotes otherness, untouchability, and leads to the same rigid stratification that grounds racism. By contrast, our work for racial justice heals our separation from each other. It harmonizes the I with the we and the we with the I. It is mutual, collaborative, and communal. When we stand against racism rather than for racial justice, we perpetuate the same structure that we're wanting to improve. Additionally, anti-racist is passive. It starts out with what you're against rather than leading from words to action. I can say that I'm against racism and remain the same, whereas work for racial justice signifies that I'm committed to building up even as I tear down. I'm committed to building up even as I tear down. She continues, let us stretch our arms out to receive each other rather than push each other away, even before we had the chance to engage or do spirit work together. It is when we confront the other in ourselves and claim ourselves in others that we move towards redemption, reconciliation, restoration, and resurrection. In this sense, Racial justice movements are etched in pragmatic optimism where we open ourselves to be enlarged by our experience with people whom we vehemently disagree because of their racism. Wow. We open ourselves to be enlarged by our experience with people with whom we disagree because of their racism. She continues, I know this is not easy. It does get easier when we understand that none of us stand above the stench and markings of racism. None of us the stench and markings of racism. This does not mean or ourselves a pass. Instead, we operate from tough love saturated in pragmatic optimism. Pragmatic optimism expands our consciousness and tenderizes our hearts so that we can attend to our own markings while simultaneously looking at people for where they stand while at the same time inspiring them to imagine a higher plane and encourage them to touch and claim their power and capacity to do the work to move themselves and the world upward. Mama Ruby Sales. I know that many of you do your own racial justice work. You read, you take workshops, I've been in them with you. Beloved Conversations workshop, Being a Good Ally, that's taught by Jan Wilson online. She's here in Leesburg, I think, that's where she lives. 
you read books you so many people asked me last week for the list of books that were in the video i was moved by that commitment and i'm asking us to make a larger commitment i challenge this congregation to make justice a priority in our personal lives as well as a congregation and what does that look like how many people know that there is a proposed eighth principle raise your hand i just want to know if you've heard of it Okay, we've only had a couple of sermons that mentioned it here. So Unitarian Universalists right now have seven principles. It's Article 2 in our bylaws. <clears throat> That's up for renewal, and, and hopefully there will be renewal of it this June. So things may change. We may be more focused on the values than the principles in the future, but that doesn't mean that we don't commit as a congregation. In fact, it's built into those values. But here are the words for the eighth principle. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote. That's how all the principles start. Journeying toward spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. I'm going to read it again just to see how it feels in your body. How might it feel to live into this? How much wholeness might we be able to experience if we did this work? Journeying toward spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. It seems like an amazing journey toward wholeness to me. Now here's what the detractors say. Not eloquent and elegant like other principles. It's wordy and awkward. It's redundant. There's too much verbiage. Why are we like this? <laughs> We've been asked not to try to wordsmith, but just to live with it. Try it on, see how it fits for us, see what possibilities there are for us, to see how we can expand our minds and our hearts and how we can heal our spirits. So let me get practical about this congregation. I often hear people say, we need to be more diverse in this congregation. We need more diversity. Well, we know what that means. We aren't saying we need more doctors or lawyers or nurses, or low-income people. That's another sermon. We're saying we want diversity that is visible to our eye. Indigenous, Black, people of color. When we say that, though, I ask myself, why? Not that I'm against it. I'm more whole when I'm with a diverse group of people, racially, ethnically, but truly, let's ask ourselves why. What is the motivation for wanting that, as right now, a primarily white congregation? I suspect it has to do with how it makes us look. Because I can guarantee you that there aren't necessarily the black congregations going, you know what this congregation needs is more white people. <laughs> I just don't see that happening. 
We want to look good. We're measuring our work and our worth by how many indigenous black people of color we have. The measure of our success, and it's based on skin color and othering. And isn't that how indigenous black people of color have been treated their whole lives differently based on race? You know what people of color are looking for in a congregation? This comes from this comes from Reverend Avi Janamanchi, who's the minister at Cedar Lane in Bethesda. He says they're looking for connection and people like them, a community of kindred spirits who engage with life's ultimate, intimate and ultimate questions with openness, honesty, and humility, who challenge and inspire each other to live out their values in the world and who teach their children to do the same. Now that appeals. That's what we want for everyone who walks through those doors. Whatever their ethnicity, whatever their sexual orientation or gender identity, whatever their abilities, whatever their religious journey, whatever sports team or musical artists they're into. <laughs> so I have a handout. And I'm going to let you just take this and you pass it to the other side too. This is for later. It doesn't have to be for now because, you know, we don't want to get lost. But look at it, and, and if you aren't where you wish you were, then consider what actions. That's the clarion call of solidarity. What are the actions that you could take to get you to a different place on this scale? What are the actions that we could take to get us to a different place on this scale. And that's true for all of us, no matter the color of our skin or our ethnicities. We all have our racial justice work to do. So I'm calling us back to it. If we've moved away from it in these pandemic years, I call to us as individuals and a congregation. And here's the thing, we may think that it has to look big, but maybe it looks like this experience that someone named Michael Asphal had. Here's what they say. In line at Pete's to get my usual this morning, a 60-something white man cuts me in line in the most casual manner, as if I don't exist. Now, you may think this, this, is, this doesn't happen that often, but I can tell you that I, I have a friend who is a disabled queer person of color, and they will tell you that they've been set on more times than any of us can even imagine. So in the most casual manner, as if I don't exist, he looks at the two white male servers standing in front of their registers to see which one will call out next. Instead, Barista One finishes with his customer and he calls out, Michael, would you like your plant-based sandwich? Surprised that he bypassed the man in front of me, I respond with, yes, thank you. Then 60-something white man goes over to Barista 2, but Barista 2 looks directly at me and asks, Michael, will you also be having your vanilla latte? Again, surprised, I say, yes, thank you so much. When my plant-based sandwich is ready, Barista 1 personally hands it over to me and says, here you go, Michael. And then Barista 3, who al always makes my vanilla latte, looks at me and says, vanilla latte, Michael. 
And as I accept my drink, 60-something white man stares at me, bewildered. I can only assume at the fact that despite his effort to pretend I did not matter, he knew my name by the time my order was up. Friends, this is what it looks like to intercept racism in progress. It is not calamitous. It is not bold. It is not strenuous. It is simple. And in the everyday decisions we make and actions we take, 60-something white man had no chance to enforce his white privilege as the barista saw what was happening and allowed me to feel safe at my neighborhood Pete's where everybody knows my name. Cheers, Michael Aswell. <laughs> So what would it mean for us to be able to do that in our everyday lives? And maybe we get to do that by exploring the eighth principle. What it, would it mean for us to adopt it? Many congregations have. What would it mean for us to actively, intentionally, purposefully commit to building beloved community, to journey together towards spiritual wholeness by working to build it? by our actions that dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions, or have, however we decide to word it. But this is our work to help our neighbor. It's a call to truly look at ourselves and our institutions and dismantle those everyday oppressions that's too easy to overlook. May we recognize that we do this work because it is a journey toward wholeness for all of us, and may we let that be true in our lives and in this congregation. Blessed be and amen.